Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 113 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How are you doing? Whew, I'm glad to have getting this one, gotten this one out here today. I am uh, coming in hot, as uh, I like to say. I'm getting ready to fly out to Michigan. Uh, just a reminder, my bluegrass tribute to Tom Petty is playing Bay City, Michigan at the State Theater Friday night. And they're, we're playing the Otis Supply, the Parliament Room in Ferndale on Saturday night. And uh, joining me uh, for both of these gigs and joining my band is uh, Keith Billick from the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. So that's going to be great. He'll be at both those. And actually, his band is opening up the night at Otis Supply. So I am trying to race and get this out so I don't miss a podcast this week. Uh, so what I had to do, though, to get this out is I had to skip doing audio clips. So I apologize for not getting any audio clips in here. But this interview with Joe Craven is you don't even need a man. This is an inspiring one. This guy just makes you want to play. So I want to thank Joe for doing it. And I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank Leland, my newest Patreon subscriber. He subscribed for the $8 level. So thank you so much once again. If you'd like to support the podcast with a little financial donation, you could do so at Patreon. Uh, everything from $1 a month up to $10 a month. And if you do it annually, I believe you can save 10% off. I want to thank my sponsors this week. Straight Up Strings is back, everybody. Straight Up Strings. Um, you got to really, you have to go to straightupstrings.com to check out all the information on how these were developed. Roger is a genius when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, Going, going right back to Stradivari and doing all these wonderful scientific experiments to get these perfect sets of strings. Uh, I always say it when they advertise it. I mean, if Tristan Scroggins and CJ Lewandowski are using them, you know they got to be good. Medium and heavy. Those are the gauges that they come in. And this is the best part. Uh, it's $8.95 a set, but if you buy a six-pack, you get them for $43.95 and you save $9.75. So that's a great deal. So go to straightupstrings.com now. Just read about all the things that they did to come up with this set of strings. It's really, really impressive. It's as impressive as Peghead Nation's insane lineup of mandolin instructors. Guys, it's the best out there. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning. You want theory? They've got it. Beginner stuff? They've got it. Everything in between? It's there. What about Irish mandolin? Marla Fibish has got it covered. And if you go to pegheadnation.com now and use the promo code mandolinbeer at checkout, that's one word, get your first month for free. That's all the high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play that you can handle in that month. So check them out at pegheadnation.com. Northfield mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs. I need to thank my listener, Larry, by the way. Larry reached out to me and, and mentioned to me that I've been pronouncing Oregon wrong the entire time. And he took the time to uh, very politely let me know uh, the proper way to say it. And he spelled it out there phonetically. And I even listened to it on Google. So I could do this. And on Google, uh, it is pronounced Oregon with that weird Google speech. So I want to thank Larry and apologize to all the Oregon people out there for getting their state wrong. So with that said, Ear Trumpet Labs are celebrating 10 years of hand-building microphones in Portland, Oregon.
Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments, whether for a single source like mandolin or single micing a full string band. Check them out at eardtrumpetlabs.com today. And Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. They as well have an incredible Instagram. So does Peghead Nation, actually. They have a great Instagram, too. They're always posting sweet videos of players. All right, that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Follow me on the Instagram at Mandolins of Beer, Facebook as well. You can go to my website. Be sure to check out all Joe Craven stuff again. Sorry, I didn't get sound clips this week. Running out of time. I haven't even packed. I got to go pack. I'm going to go pack. Let's get into the interview with Joe Craven. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week. All right, man. Now it is my pleasure to introduce to the podcast Joe Craven. Welcome, Joe. How are you? Hi, Daniel. I'm good. Man, good. I am so stoked to have you on. Thank you. I appreciate you being uh, being the inimitable host that you've already uh, proved yourself to be in our in our uh, shaking hands with each other here before starting. So, yeah. Glad to be on the show. Thank you. We were supposed to meet in person and actually shake hands, and uh, we were going to be up at Delfest together. You, the MC there, and you've been the MC there for the whole time, haven't you? I yeah, I came on board the second year. Right, they realized that they wanted a um, they wanted a a branded personality, if you will, and uh, and I already had had prior experience emceeing other music festivals, so uh, it, and it was a good fit. I knew the High Sierra people um, for, gosh, you know, many, many, well, almost really from their inception. Uh, and uh, for folks that don't know, High Sierra is the is the uh, is the company that's based in Northern California. They're based in the in the East Bay of San Francisco, and they they uh, do the infrastructure for basically three festivals a year. One is High Sierra here in Northern California. Uh, another. Uh, Halloween Harvest, Dia de los Muertos themed uh, event called Hangtown, and then of course uh, Del Fest there in Cumberland, Maryland. Maybe next year. I, they, it's, yeah, it's on the books for yeah. next year. So, well, as we, uh, as well as 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 I say, uh, there's really only one boss with what's going on. Uh, from the health platform in our lives right now. And that's this virus. Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> the virus really calls the shots, you know, ultimately. So hopefully we will, hopefully we will find a peaceful, uh, a peaceful place with all of this and be able to be able to be able to move forward. Yeah. That would be great. You were saying yeah. before we started this too, um, kind of with the pandemic, you, you, you moved to the online world as far as doing some group lessons and personal lessons for I mean all the things you play you know I you know not to use yeah. that buzzword but I mean I guess the best way to put it is multi-instrumentalist um you you do a lot of amazing things well as as I as I somewhat tongue-in-cheek mentioned to you before we uh started recording that I tell my students that uh, being a multi-instrumentalist is job security yeah, that's right <laughs> but it is but um but yeah, I, education has always been a really important component to what I do as as a mandolin player. Um, it's it's really makes up for at least half of what I do. There's the there is the performing, uh, producing um, side of what I do, 
uh, because yeah, I would love to produce people in the studio uh, and, and being a session player in general. But then there, then, then the other half of the mix is, is all things uh, education based, uh, empowering other people uh, to play and, and, and seeing how that, how that changes your life, um, how it serves this bigger purpose, this bigger sense of, of self and sense of place. So yeah, I dig it. I dig it. It's so funny you would say that because I remember, and I just connected the dots with this like a few years ago, probably mentally, but like that whole change your life sort of thing. Like I remember having like I guess it would probably be like a separation anxiety or I just would get, you know, you get anxious and you never, you don't know what that feeling is. You're just like, I just, I just don't want to be around people. And like, just, I just would be like, I just want to be home and listening to music right now or holding an instrument or playing, you know, whatever it is. And like, that's been like this crazy, cozy blanket of mine that I've dragged around my entire life that you, you know, I'm just like, wow, that's what it was, man. (laughs) It's just Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like a drug, you know, a miracle drug. Well, you know, we could say that, yes, I, I give instruction for mandolin from a skill set platform. But really, Daniel, what I'm, I'm really driven by as an educator is to, em, is to empower people, to validate and empower people to uh, tell their stories through creativity, through creative process. So the idea of, of doing that with the idea of picking up a mandolin and playing music is just one of the options that people have. But there's this bigger, deeper, important calling. I mean, I think I, be- I truly believe that it is everyone's birthright to uh, be creative, to uh, tell your story, because everybody's story is unique, right? No one has your story. I, your story is very different from mine. That alone for me, makes your story important in its uniqueness. And I want, I want to know about it. And artistic expression is, to me, the, the most deeply spiritual and inspirational way, inspirational way to do that. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of been my calling is to is to is to say to people you can make music because i think that's the first big challenge it's the first problem that people have to be able to clear um and sometimes they've already just made a declaration that because they don't have the right kind of dna predisposition you know it's like the idea of see it's it's the struggle of the idea of talent do I have any talent? You know, so then they look at their genetic blueprint because there is a certain, you know, there, there, there is arguably a certain kind of proclivity that people can have um, that they that they inherited from, you know, either a parent, parents, or once removed by grandparents, or <laughs> right. you know, whatever. However, that works. There's no denying that. But it is absolutely not a prerequisite for people to be able to uh, engage in creativity, whether it's a paintbrush, a camera, dancing shoes, film, or a musical instrument, or or pen to paper, literature. You know, um, you know, and then some of these areas, you know, 
with music making. Be a mandolin player? Why not be a songwriter? Why not, you know, or learn to sing? And and maybe learn to sing because now you've picked up the mandolin and you've gotten to a place where you can play it in a fundamental way. You can strum the instrument in time and change chords in time, keep a beat, and start to be able to play simple melodies. Now you're ready to play with other people. Not not that you need to do that as a as a solitary thing prior to that. Um, but the idea is, yeah, now I want to get in a band. Okay. Well, what about, what about the other aspects of, of music to, to deepen your connection of playing the mandolin? Well, let's get into singing and songwriting, you know, and then it goes from there. And then sometimes, I mean, I became a mandolin player out of starting on electric guitar and being a rocker in high school. So that learning how to play that guitar got jump-started me. It got me going in the idea of playing music. That's the key. That's, I think that's what I'm getting at here is it's the fundamental of realizing that if you want, it's, and it should be a choice, you can do this. And I think that's the biggest problem is a lot of people feel like I don't have what it takes. I'd, oh, I wish, I wish I could do that, but no, I don't, I can't do that. You know, or they get a, what, what I call the slap on the heart. <laughs> when they were young, they did something creative and people, somebody responded to them, peers, even a teacher, which for me is criminal when that happens to say, oh, honey, just, you know, just, 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 uh, you know, here, we'll put you, we'll, we'll, we'll put you over here in the back and, you know, you can just sort of lip sync along if you want. I mean, that kind of stuff, in, in other words, invalidating somebody's desire to want to open their mouth or take a pick in their hand and strum it. Um, and that, that is something that can haunt somebody for their, for their life, really, for the rest of their life. Actually, had that happen to me. You, you, you validated what I'm talking about. I mean, I think all of us struggle with this. Things happen. We, it's, it, takes, it takes courage and it takes permission and it takes acceptance and validation, all these, all these aspects to give someone a safe place to be able to express themselves and not be worrying about the – not being worried about measurement. In other words – being judged or being assessed by others. And this is a very fundamental thing psychologically for all of us that have gone through education, gone through school. You know, you, you, you do a performance, you write a paper, you present something in front of the class. Everything has to be assessed on a grading system. Um, so we're, we're, we're familiar with that. And we're also familiar with uh, all the, all the, the, the struggles or the difficulties that can be accompanied with that. Um, and so when there's a feeling of, of, of evaluation that, that feels unjustified or feels hurt, it, that hurts. Yeah. That's the thing that sometimes has to be, it has to be uh, liberated. It has to be reversed. Um, and, and actually reversed is not really the right word because you need to, you need to accept that. You need to take that in and, and accept what, what is bad about this. And I, and, 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 and that's the opportunity to learn from it. 
But sometimes you need someone else to, to look at you and say, you know, you have stories to tell. You can tell them. Maybe, maybe we need to create an, another opportunity. In other words, it's that old thing of never give up. You know, let's, let's create another opportunity. But, for, but with me starting off by saying, I validate you. I believe in you. I know that you can tell stories. You can, you can reveal your, your, you can, you can become more of who you already are through expression. So let's get to work. Let's do it. And then you create this. This is where my camps come in. This is where community camps I've, I'm a huge fan of. And I, we have our own camps, my family, and then I teach at other camps as well. Festivals have that same kind of platform. It's the idea of inviting people to, after the main stage music is done and, you know, we've been sit, we've been watching all this amazing inspirational music come from people. Then we go to our campsites and we make music, right? Absolutely. Or we, or we walk around and watch other people making music and maybe, maybe one of those, you know, one of those, one of those festival opportunities or one of those nights at, at that festival, something happens where you step forward and you at least, if nothing else, sing along, you know. Um, and then somebody, oftentimes it can be as much as somebody just putting an instrument in your hand and showing you two chords, as much as you saying, hey, I want to do that. I want to go. In other words, it can be a self-inflicted, <laughs> self-inflicted moment, or it can be, again, somebody like myself, like somebody giving, giving someone an opportunity saying, you can do this. This is, you know, here's the thing, Daniel. I mean, we can, we can, you know, this, this, this is a rich, this is a rich vein to talk about, but I'll, I'll let, let's put a button on this by saying what a primary mission of mine as an educator is to have people, and I have different things that I do with this to drive the point home when I, when I present and when I teach, I want people to be able to, if they choose to not make music, I want them to do it because they're, because they're just not interested in it. I don't want them to say, I, I'm not going to make music because I can't. Because I cannot. Do you see the difference? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, the, that's at the heart of it all for me. I, when, I, when I hear people say, I'd, I'd really love to do that but I can't. Those, those people are who I want to reach out to. And I want to show them that they can then make your choice, you know, because should everybody make music? That's, that's not the issue. I don't think anybody should do anything that, that, that doesn't, it doesn't ignite their heart, but I want them to know that they can. Man. I, I, All right. How inspiring, dude! <laughs> uh, and if and if you're not inspired by this at this point, uh, you, I, you, you must be numb. But um, if you want to sign up and contact Joe, JoeCraven.com, go there and you can contact Joe for lessons or look at his different things that he teaches. Because man, I'm inspired right now. <laughs> oh, good, good. So. It's yeah. It's you know this music making thing is, you know, then you look at all the residual stuff when you make. 
when you learn to play an instrument, you know that folk music is social music. Then you start to, then you start to find your tribe. Then you start to connect with other people. And here's the, here's the gold in this, man, is that music making in this general way that we're talking about, okay? Because we could say that music can be a platform to express your, your faith, a platform to express your political views, a platform to express, you know, a lot of things, right? But the fundamental of like, let's say, you know, let's just the joy of playing music with other people and finding a tribe where a particular style of music is going to be chased after. And so they, like you, are looking for other people that either are into playing old-time string band music or, uh, you know, um, second-generation bluegrass music like J.D. Crow and Doyle Lawson and, of course, our beloved uh, uh, Dale McCurry. Or you're you're ch chasing after people who are into goth rock. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. It's not about the style. You know, music does not need music doesn't need labels as much as it needs opportunity. It just it just you need you know find those people, and then you build friendships. And the thing that's really cool in the end about this, which is why I think art and philosophy are the two categories that may save us as a species is that we can, we can find common ground with people that may have completely different political views, completely different faith-based views than, than we have me as a person, but but glue, but music winds up being the glue that binds us together. It doesn't. The music doesn't really care about those differences. What what the music wants to provide is how do we find common ground? And that's we need we need this more than ever, as we all know. So there you go. <laughs> This is like the most inspiring conversation, man. This is great. Oh my gosh. You're like talking about, I mean, you're literally just like, you're it's like you're reading my mind as far as like my life story even, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I, I you, you meet different people in life and when you're a musician, you kind of, the friends you had when you weren't a musician, you don't, it's like you don't have any, you still have things in common, but. But it's like you find these people who have something in common. You're like, oh, I, well, I want to hang out with this person and make music with this person all the time. And then they introduce you to new people. So, Well, and the thing is, you know, it, you meet people, you go to a fest, you go to Dell Fest, and you're walking around with your mandolin and you and you hit on some really great champs where you're just, you know, the, the ability levels are all, you know, fairly close where you can really connect with these people. They connect with you come on hey come on in and have some snacks with us have a beer you know you you pick you you sing you play big smiles people are feeling good 
take a break, start talking about, oh, man, cool, man, where are you from? You know, da, 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 da. One, thing, one thing happens after another. And maybe you hit on some things where you realize, oh, these people are really different than me <laughs> or I'm really different than these people. But to not, God, to not let that be in the way of the magic of that that glue. Well, it's two things. You know, music is 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 is, is it's glue, but it's also oil. It also lubricates relationships in the sense of really keeping a flow and and allowing things to keep moving forward, even though you know you've got you you're going. I'm I've, I'm really different than this person, you know, and and in spite of those differences. My music is what is is what really matters here is what and then and then we find that it's again it's that common ground thing it's honoring diversity it's allowing for that and honoring diversity. The music itself doesn't care what your politics are it doesn't care what your what your faith is if you have a faith based thing whatever um it 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 just wants it wants to happen <laughs> right, we just exactly. want. We just want, you know, here's, here's, a, here's an image. You're right down front there at Dell Fest. People are standing. Dell and the boys are on stage. They're playing. And everyone's moving. I mean, as the MC, I have this wonderful uh, place, perspective, to be watching side stage, looking out. I'm looking at the back's of the Del McCurry band. And I'm looking at the faces, the happy, jubilant faces of people moving and dancing and smiling and cheering, watching them. And I could be looking at somebody, and I've actually seen this, I can be looking at somebody who is, I get a sense because maybe they've got, they're wearing something that reveals this place, but they're maybe po politically to the right of Attila the Hun. <laughs> very, very to the right wing of things. And they can be standing there moving and grooving and dancing and cheering with someone who is the most tree-hugging, bleeding heart liberal with a, with you know a rastafarian cap on their on their due and and tie dyed to the max and they're both bound together through this man who is in his 80s playing on stage Hair is standing up on my arms it, just it, thinking about it. It right happens, now, it ha yeah, it one hundred percent. It happens, <laughs> and 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 I and when I see those, when I feel those moments, and I see them, and I'm you know I'm making perceptions. I could be wrong. Maybe those two people are the flip. Maybe the person with the dreads and the tie dye is like is. Is 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 the is the right winger, you know? Mm -hmm. But the point is, it's 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 that common ground. It's how these these settings, these festivals, this music has 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 created this incredible common ground. And if we can all just seize that moment and look at it and think about it, um, 
I think, you know, I think that's what our country really needs to be seeing and, and feeling. So, so, th- so, so this, this other payoff about more people playing music, creating opportunities to get people. Look at the ukulele phenomenon, Daniel. Right. Four strings, very – lots of two-finger chords. Affordable. Um, affordable, af- af- affordable and portable. And um, – and and how it's created all these ukulele clubs and groups. Well, and then we can look at the same thing, not perhaps with the same degree of success, but nonetheless still creating this huge tribe ultimately in the mandolin world with things like on, especially online things like, you know, mandolin cafe and, you know, these, these on-site uh, places. And then of course, players, you know, you have players like, I mean, you look at, for me, looking at the phenomenon of somebody like what Chris Steely has done for the instrument. Um, but there are of course, so many great players that have inspired other people, mandolin festival or not, excuse me, mandolin camps, you know, it's mandolin has its share too of creating, of creating this thing. But yeah, I think it's I think music may save us and 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 having people realize it's not just a spectator sport. Absolutely. They can be in it. They can be in it. Yeah. So so a lot of people might know you from playing percussion. I mean, the first time I became aware of you was I got Grateful Dog. I bought the Grateful Dog movie because I just started playing mandolin and Shady Grove was one of the first albums I purchased. I'm like, oh my gosh! Although there's a there's a DVD on it, and there's this amazing percussion player <laughs> that's playing with the band. And a lot of people might not realize. I mean, you spent was it like 17 years with David Guzman yeah. playing percussion and, and violin yeah. and such. But you're also yeah, almost this, 17 years. Yeah, yeah it, but you're also an incredible mandolin player. So you you, you mentioned you, you were a rock guitar player at first. So how did you? What brought you to the mandolin? Well, it was an impulse buy. Um, I saw a mandolin in a music store. And <clears throat> one day, it was a, it was a harmony, what they called a bat wing. Yeah, harmony. It's just it actually the where the scroll would normally be, like on an like like an F model mandolin. It, it looks almost like a shark fin. Actually, it's kind of a comes up to a point, so it sounds like you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. It, Perhaps some of some of the listeners do too. And harmony batwing with a magnetic pickup on it, what they call a, a, I believe they call it a biscuit pickup, and it looked like a little electric guitar. It had block inlays on the neck, you know, um, like some uh, some mandos and uh, some of the Gibsons. Um, and uh, I said, "God, geez, what's that?" He says, "That's a mandolin," and I and it kind of was a different view of a mandolin than what I was used to. I was used to mandolins that I see more in old world paintings. Uh, you know, the Neapolitan, uh, what we'd call the bowl back, you know, the bowl back mandolin, or that some people would call it the tater bug because <laughs> of the <laughs> alternating slats on the back, you know, the ribs. tater bug. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and, um, 
And I said, I said, wow, I could plug it in, you know, so I plugged it in. Anyway, I fell in love with it just because it was different. It was something different. So I fell in love with the instrument itself, not its connection to any style of music, which is interesting because that's not usually how it happens, I think, for a lot of people. But I, for me, I was just enamored with the instrument. And that began my journey of, uh, of learning to play the, the mandolin. So I have this instrument. And I wound up getting some acoustic mandolins eventually. I got a Gibson A Junior, uh, very simple one, uh, very, you know, affordable. Uh, wound up buying an A3 eventually. Um, but so here I am, uh, an undergrad student at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, and I'm sitting between classes. I'm out there with my Mel Bay chord book learning, you know, learning these chords and people would stop by and uh, ask me if I knew, um, if I knew fiddle tunes named after fruit. <laughs> and I was like going blackberry, what? Blackberry blossom? What is it? June apple? Well, I, you know, and my answer was no. <laughs> I, you know, I was not connected to so anyway so there you go right so here's this association so 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 people that played bluegrass and pickers and you know old time people and all that stuff folk folkies a, a professor came by one day a very fine flat top guitar player and he invited me to a picking party and he would do these things um, at his place outside of town so I went to my first couple of picking parties and I did not I was like no. No, I wasn't connecting with the music at all. I, when I was in high school, going through the rock thing, uh, matter of fact, another little funny side note, I went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I was uh, in, my, in my class, I became good friends with another guy who was playing music and his name was Peter Buck. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, after high school, he went on, of course, to great fame and success in the group REM. But uh, we had a band. Uh, his brother, Ken, played bass, and we had some other buddies from our class. And uh, we were all drawn to just playing rock. And, um, I mean, we were listening to everything from the kinks to, you know, to the dead. Although I was, curiously, I was never really a deadhead. Um, but I got more connected with fusion and so this is in the seventies now fusion jazz. Um, gosh, uh, boy, <laughs> everything from late period, Miles Davis to, to, uh, you know, stuff a little more dissonant and free, like art ensemble of Chicago and, um, uh, weather report. Um, but I was also into Zappa. I was also into stuff that was more kind of, you know, um, socio edge edgy you know i mean how do you describe zappa yeah you know, I, I don't know that very, you can <laughs> very very complex stuff but anyway but i finally so i but i kind of stayed with this pick and party stuff even though i didn't really connect with it so bluegrass was like no <laughs> but i but i kind of hung in there with it and then one 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 day this was around this was 1978 I'm uh, I'm at one of these parties and the guy who was hosting this was another cat had bought a record down at the record store 
that day and he put it on. We were, we, it was a potluck. So we, we'd done some picking and then we were eating, sitting around eating. And this guy put on this record that he had bought. And it was the David Grisman record. He I knew, knew that, I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> yeah. He, he, uh, he had, you know, he was hip to Grisman. Grisman had the rounder album. He had, you know, he had, of course he was an old and in the way that was in the early seventies, you know, so the, the groundwork had already been laid. We're like, okay, yeah. Grisman is this kind of West coast hippie guy who, you know, um, although he's originally from Passaic, New Jersey, but, um, he put this record on and I excused myself from the situation. And I went and sat down in front of the record player, just entranced watching the needle spinning around on this licorice pizza and listening to these, these realistic speakers that were emitting this sound that I'd never heard before. And I became completely entranced by it. And it was the first David Grisman quintet record, right? The guy gave me the record because he was so disappointed that it didn't. And he said I, that it wasn't bluegrass. And he said, you know, he said, you know, I was suspicious when I didn't see a, a, a banjo <laughs> on the cover because it's this still life photograph of the instruments. And he was going, yeah, I was wondering what the thing was with two mandolins. <laughs> so anyway, the rest is the, the the rest is history for me. I took that record. He gave it to me, and I took it and I wore it out and um, drove my roommates crazy. And um, but that gave me a, that gave me a direction. So needless to say, I became a huge fan of David's music. And uh, when I graduated, I went west. I came out here to the West Coast, and uh, I was living in Reno. And I would even in the middle of the week sometimes I would. I would, I had a day job, um, but I would get in my car. If I knew that the Grisman Quintet was playing somewhere in the Bay area, I'd get in my car and drive from Reno all the way over to the Bay area, which is about three hours in the middle of the week to see a show. And then I'd drive back that night, you know, to, <laughs> and maybe take a nap before going on, going back to work <laughs> the next day. But, but I was, I, I was that driven by this whole bigger thing that became known, known as new acoustic music. And of course, one of the components of that was David's dog music. And uh, so to zip ahead, uh, I eventually met David over an instrument deal. I had a beautiful mandocello, a K5 that I had actually bought from at a really great price, which was something in itself to marvel at uh, from George Gruen in Nashville. Um, and but I needed to I needed the money and I wasn't really playing it. And uh, David had heard that I was through the grapevine that I was selling this, so he invited me over to his house. He bought the instrument, but that began a relationship that we had between us. And uh, eventually, um, he realized that I played violin, I played mandolin, I played percussion. And so one day, he invited me to start doing some sit-ins with him and his group, and then I got a call to join the quintet. Wow! And that was in that was in 1989, and that was also the year that he was getting ready to launch his new record label, which was New Acoustic. Excuse me, Acoustic Disc. That's it, Acoustic Disc. And um, and it was also the the that fall he had reconnected with Jerry. And the rest is history. I yeah. mean, it just a lot of things happened kind of all at once. It was a real pivotal year for me. Um, 
So, so that was a lot of yakking at you. No, that's I, dude, that, <laughs> that's an amazing story. But that's, but that's kind of, that gives you a sort of a, a rough timeline and kind of where I was coming from with things on, you know, to get back to your initial question of why the mandolin, you know, what happened with that? So it was just a serendipitous thing, just how all these things kind of fell, fell into place. It, um, it makes a lot of sense looking like at your, uh, like the, the the albums that you put out too, that that bluegrass necessarily wasn't like the home base for you. Um, no, you know. and I love it though. I see. The funny thing is, I didn't like it at all at first. It was an acquired. It had to be an acquired taste for me. It wasn't like this infatuation, this thing like, oh my god, that's so great. Uh, because like a lot of Middle America, I had become in- introduced to bluegrass through listening to the theme of the Beverly Hillbillies and. <laughs> Watching Andy Griffith and seeing the Dillards on there and, you know, watching the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. And it's like, who was this kind of irreverent guy on there playing banjo? Of course, that was John Hartford, you know, but it was all tangent stuff. It was all just kind of on the fringe. And I I just didn't – I mean, olden in the way, when I, I did hear that record when I was in high school, and it's because somebody had it at their house and I was going, okay, well this, yeah, I get, you know, I, I know what this music is. And of course I didn't really, but, <laughs> but the one thing that struck me on that record was what the hell is going on with the violin player? Oh man. Yeah. I had never heard violin playing like that before, but of course none of the rest of the world had either, you know, Vassar was, Besser was chasing after a whole different deal. Amazing. So I was, I was enchanted by that, by what he was doing. But but I still, yes, I I wasn't ready for the music. The music was certainly ready for me, but I wasn't. So I so eventually I came around to loving bluegrass, and I played in a few bluegrass bands and stuff. This was all before David, but. Um, well, you remind me of, of Vassar a bit. In the fact of, I mean, a great example for me, I would think anyway, is like your album Camp Town, which takes these, which takes these traditionally bluegrass titles (laughs) and and themes, but you, you take them to places that, you know, until you listen to this album, I don't know that anybody would ever think that way. It's so cool and creative and original sounding how did you approach it that way well that that began my music career i <laughs> uh branding as a re I, I call myself a reimagineer or i do reimagined projects so camp, camp town was that was the first example of that and then i went on to do others follow chasing after that same idea taking 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 styles of music that I love and cross-pollinating them, um, reimagining them, reimagining them stylistically, rhythmically, uh, melodically even, um, you know, uh, taking, playing a melody and putting completely different chord substitutions under them, you know, just that kind of stuff. I just became enchanted with that. And um, I did a project called Django Latino, where I took all the, the, I took the writing of you know, Django covered a lot of great music, um, doing his, of course, his his own his own style of the of gyp- gypsy jazz. But he was also a really great composer, 
So I wanted to celebrate his his compositions as well as the style by taking uh, taking that stuff and putting it, looking at it through a lens of different styles of music from Latin America. Um, I did a thing called Mojo, which was kind of a real wild thing where I brought in singing. This was the follow up to Camp Town. I wanted to do something that was celebrating old folk songs, and um, and I play electric instruments on there. It's kind of I tip my hat to being a rocker on some of that stuff. Um, and yeah, and, 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 you know, there's other, pro I did a project called Folky with uh, a really great bassist named Sam Bevan, um, where we did just more reimagining of, of folk music, of stuff that's well-known in bluegrass or old time or whatever. Um, but yeah, David, da David's music really inspired me, but then I also, at almost the same time got turned. And so he's West coast based, right? In the Northeast, there was a, you know, at the same, almost the same time, the late seventies, there was incredible, incredibly inventive stuff going on with people like, um, Matt Glazer, brilliant, brilliant violinist, uh, another great inventive, uh, fiddler, uh, Kenny Kosick, Andy Statman, Tony Tr Tony Trishka, um, Russ Berenberg. Russ Berenberg, Berenberg put out this incredible album called Cowboy Calypso that came out kind of just shortly after the the original that first quintet record. That's a phenomenal record. A lot of people are not familiar with that. It was reissued on Rounder with another, with a follow-up release of Russ's, and it's now available called, and it's called Halloween Rehearsal. But that's basically a combination of two LPs that Russ put out. This stuff is, stuff, this stuff hit me as hard as, as the quintet. Um, and yeah, so there was this exciting thing going on in, in what this eventually became known as new acoustic music. Oh, and of course, somebody else I left out by, Pardon me, please, Bela, Bela Fleck. Um, but to all these, all these guys doing their own version of really creative, different stuff. You know, very, very influenced by jazz, um, but all kinds of things. I mean, Russ brought in uh, kind of Latin feels, you know, Caribbean f flavors, and uh, Calypso. Well, as the name implied, with that release, Cowboy Calypso. Um, Lots of really amazing, great stuff. And I think so. I think subconsciously that kind of reimagining of, of American string band music with traditional, traditionally thought of as bluegrass instruments um, really affected me doing things like what I did on Camp Town to bring this back around to your question. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't write a lot of original material. But I love to reinvent. I do have original compositions for sure. But I, yeah, yeah, it's so it's so uh, so inspiring. Yeah. Did you go to school right. for music? Nope. Oh no, kidding. Comple completely self-taught. I'm musically I am musically illiterate. I don't I don't read I don't read music. I don't even relate to paper. I'm uh, I don't even relate to the Nashville number system. I know that that's what really blows people's minds. But um, but I do have a good ear. 
Yeah, no I, kidding. I, I, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Well, I mean, I don't mean that. I don't mean that the way it sounded. I, I, I'm proud of the fact that I learned how to play music the same way we all learned how to talk. You learned how to talk and to improvise with sounds to communicate needs or expressions and to do it differently every time you would speak it by the time you were four years old. You, it precedes literacy. It precedes mm -hmm. the need to read or write. Some of the greatest storytellers in human history have been people who were illiterate, who could not read or write, but could through organized sound language which speech and music both have in common. They could tell stories that could bring you to your knees in laughter and, or, and make you weep openly. So that's, that's part of my work as an, as an educator too, is to say that learning how to read music to study theory is great. It's incredible. However, it is not a prerequisite to making music and making really interesting music. That's important. That's an important thing. I'm, I think musical literacy is awesome, but, um, I, I, but it is not a prerequisite. Yeah. Well, in one album of yours that I love is the, the Joe Craven trio album. Oh, the, <laughs> yeah. dude. I mean, I, I love organ trios anyway. Yeah, you, like, <laughs> sure, you man, you picked up on that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. but you know, yeah. um, organ trio with a mandolin, uh, just like this is this is the best. And but you know, you, you I mean, it's real jazzy sounding. There's some real complex sounding mandolin parts in there. Well, thanks. I well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I love so many different kinds of music. Um, and I mean, I love to play the blues. I love urban and I love country blues, but I love urban blues, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's one particular cut on there called uh, the Crackadons, I think, um, written by, I will tell you this, I'm the, that Joe Craven trio, that particular group of, of it's, it's actually the, that release I think is called all for one. Yeah, which four actually four. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you are. Four, yeah, it's well, it's it's two. It celebrates two different keyboard players that I worked with in the trio. So I wanted to be inclusive when it was time to record by by celebrating both of them, and and the concept with the project was to uh, put a challenge to everyone in the trio, which in this case with alternating keyboard players, four of us, to write original material for the record. So we all brought original compositions to the project. But that trio was only as good as, I mean, I could only make that happen because of the two principal players, uh, John R. Burr on keys and Kendrick Freeman on, on drums and percussion. Both those guys were, I, I, count my lucky stars every day that I was able to meet them and play with them because they're, as you know from the record, they're extraordinary players. John, John R. Burr played with Allison Brown, great banjo player, for, for, <laughs> for a long time, well over 20 years. Um, he was a signature sound of her, uh, the Allison Brown Quartet. 
Yeah, he's not with her anymore, but um, but I felt really lucky because I played with Allison too uh, for about seven years, actually, right after David leaving David's thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that was a really fun project. Then those guys, yeah, I felt very blessed to have played with them and recorded with them. Obviously, it dug into some jazz stuff then and and studied oh, some yeah, of that because yeah. I mean, it's just. It's great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's everything you would yeah, everything you'd want to hear. <laughs> yeah, j- jazz and and uh, and Latin things like like Brazilian flavored things and um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. You know, it's funny. There's there's talking about the mandolin world. There's the whole thing of uh, of what Mike Marshall helped do to bring um, to bring a style of Brazilian music, choro, to to the mandolin world. And Mike, Mike, Mike has just been so great with that. And, um, but I never, I, through my percussion work, I, I love that. I love, uh, all kinds of Brazilian music and Brazilian, when you say Brazilian, I mean, it, it, yeah, there are a lot of different types of, of Brazilian music. Um, but I, I got really interested in, uh, Afro-Cuban music. And I became all the more intrigued with it as a mandolin player because it does not have a history of the mandolin and the music. So that's why I was drawn to it <laughs> <laughs> is because it doesn't have a history with it as like, say, Shoro does, you know, artists like uh, Jacob de Bandelim, oh. he, he brought this, this thing to it. Um, and of course, a huge... In, you know, huge, uh, uh, well, him and, um, compositionally, um, Pichaginha, you know, these two cats, such great melodic composers. The, that's all, I mean, the, the Shoro thing, I mean, the, these melodies are just insane. I just adore them. I love them, but I really love playing the mandolin in Afro-Cuban music. Yeah, that's I love it, man. It's yeah, it's it, great. Yeah, anywhere. So I, blah blah blah. I, yeah, no, I, I do. I have to ask you. Um, I mean, because obviously you played with. Um, I mean, Grisman is regarded as you know, it's uh, just like a whole, a whole. He's like the Garcia of music. I mean, you just have to say dog, and everybody knows <laughs> if you play mandolin, you know exactly what you know. I mean, yeah, the style of music. And you know, with 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 playing with a guy like that, what are some things that you picked up mandolin wise that maybe um, you know help some of the people out there listening? Yeah, I mean, because there's a lot of, lot of dog fans as well. And well, okay, that's a great that's a great question. I would say this. You know, I became completely. I was so inspired by what David was doing, and of course, when we're really inspired by some something, and and um, we want to connect with it, the best thing to do is to mimic it is to sound like that or paint like that or whatever like that, um, to connect to it deeper, you know? And so I would sit there and lift that needle up and down and learn those signature licks of David's playing, what became kind of part of the, of the, of the stylistic, you know, the uh, signature, if you will, of his, of his playing his style. And, um, and I learned a lot of those tunes and people, Years later, when I when I became a, a better player, more a more advanced player, he would say, "Wow, man, that was great! You sound just like David Grisman." 
<laughs> and I went, oh, wait, oh, cool, thanks. Wow, that's a great, that's a great compliment. But then I realized what I really need to do is I need to be finding out my voice, my my sound. What you know because. Because I, I was realizing what I really – what needs to happen is I want people to say, I, wow, man, I really love your playing. I really love how you sound. And I think – so what am I saying with this to listeners, to, to players, uh, you know, entry-level players, anybody really? It's um, find your heroes. Imitate what they have to offer. Um, you know, get get guidance. Get your build your build your foundation based on this idea. Every tradition begins as an innovation. That's a fact. Every tradition, everything that we are familiar with, it all started as an innovation. So was the case with David. David had a tradition, if you will. I'm really stretching this, but I think you guys will get it. His, his style was established and became celebrated, and that becomes part of the tradition of music. It's a style that becomes welded into, uh, in, into, the, into the musical landscape. So his was the, his was the tradition that inspired me more than say Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe's music after he met that young teenager from North Carolina named Earl Scruggs who changed every freaking thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean Bill Monroe, yes, the patriarch of bluegrass. You know, just like Django Reinhardt, the patriarch of gypsy jazz. But the the game changer in bluegrass for me was Earl because of the way he was playing the banjo. He was refining this style that became known as the three-finger roll. I mean, he didn't invent it. He, in, he refined it. He took that idea and he made it his own. And he did it in a way that it electrified the banjo world, the bluegrass world. I mean, there were other banjo players who were also at that time experimenting, you know, with ideas. Um, you know, this idea of rolling and using finger picks and all that. But, but that's a bit of a digression. But it, but, but it plays into what, what I'm trying to say about back to this thing about, about finding your style is that David's music laid the groundwork for me. And then, um, so then I mimicked that and I, and I, and it gave me a foothold. It gave me a sense of direction. But then I started listening to other players and more spe specifically, Daniel, I started listening to other instruments for inspiration, not just mandolin, you know, listening, listening to piano, listening to what guitar players were doing, listening to, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So, so, I, so, so the thing is find your heroes, mimic styles, but don't forget to make the music your own. Don't forget to make your, the music your own. And during the Garcia Grisman sessions, when we were recording with Jerry in the basement of David's house at that time in Mill Valley uh, in Marin County, I had the 
I had the great fortune of being able to have some conversations with Jerry one-on-one, just talking about music and, um, and, 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 you know, asking him questions about the phenomenon of the dead and how he, how he viewed all this. And, um, Jerry, Jerry commented that he was always flattered that there were Grateful Dead cover bands, you know, people that were so, that were part of the dead culture and so moved by this that they wanted to play the music themselves and live through that, uh, music, uh, that way. Um, but Jerry said, but you know, as is part of the process of folk process is that ultimately making the music your own is, is really what you need to do. And I believe, you know, I believe David even mentioned that to me once, uh, when, when he had said that Bill Monroe had said the very same thing to him because David idolizes Bill Monroe. Yeah. And this is a great, he's a great example of what you're talking about. Like he idolizes Bill Bill Monroe, but he doesn't, but he he doesn't sound like Bill Monroe because he sounds like himself. (laughs) He sounds like himself. And I think that's what, you know, just to reiterate, I think that's, I think he even said that was something that Bill had said to him or he heard Bill say that, that you, you need to make the music your own. Um, so I think that's I think that's the advice, you know, find things that inspire you, connect with them, let them be a preliminary roadmap if you will to what will become ultimately your sound. This is why I do this podcast because everyone sounds like themselves. And like you, you distinctly like listening to all the projects, even this the 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 Garcia songbook. I mean, you reimagine these songs, but your mandolin playing, I mean, you really you sound like you. You know, I mean, you can hear influences of other things, but it's just like, it's man, it's there's like all sorts of licks I have noted to learn <laughs> because I want to add right. them to my, you know what I mean? It's just like I want to yeah, put them well, in my vocabulary yeah. and and doing this podcast yeah. is talking to people because it's not just if everybody just listened to Bill Monroe or if everybody just listened to Grisman, they would sound just like Grisman. It wouldn't. It, it's but no, it's all my favorite players and all the people who've been on this podcast. It's the stuff that they listen to besides Grisman or besides Sam Bush or besides Thiele that have made them themselves. And that's what I love. I love finding this yeah. stuff out, man. This is so fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, it's great you do this, Daniel. Um, and you've and then you've got a, an audience uh, to share this with. That's that's yeah, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, it yeah, yeah. It you know, um <sighs> music making is um is it, it's 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 an incredible journey it really transcends and it goes way beyond just the idea of learning how to play an instrument and play music though it really it 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 gives us a greater sense of self it helps us become more of who we already are i think i mentioned that before um and um uh, it's a it's it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a blessing. It's a gift waiting to happen for anyone that wants it. So uh, maybe that's, you know, I don't know, maybe that's a good way to wrap this up, but I mean, I know we've been talking, we've been talking well over an hour, I think. Yeah. But, um, well, let me squeeze two more questions in if that's cool okay. with you. Okay. This one, sure. this one's, this is definitely a little bit more technique based, but if you had 10 minutes to just pick up your mandolin today what would you work on? I would work on something that, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, I don't do so much of anymore because at one point I was, I was pretty good at it. 
pretty good, you know. Oh man, great. Um, and that's and that well, well, but no, I mean, but really to be to be to be humbled. <laughs> um yeah, pretty good at it and that's um and that's speed. But what's interesting about that is that I the a lot so much of the music I play these days is not based on speed. Whereas bluegrass um get you know, I mean, just getting to where you play 16th notes at a breakdown tempo, it becomes kind of a, a thing. It becomes part of the standard equipment of, of, of playing the music. But I realize there are some times when I want to be able to, I, I want to be able to pull up speed. And, and if I'm, and if I don't stay in shape with it, then I, then I'm not able to do it as, as effectively. So I think, uh, I think that's probably something I would, I would work on, you know, and, 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 and have been a little bit, even though I, I, I have been a little bit and gotten a little better at it, even though I, I really haven't, I don't, again, I don't really use it much. I love, I love playing music where there's a tremendous amount of space and, um, and where the where the the magic happens in in how I'm saying what I'm saying, <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, I you know here's a great analogy to the idea of practice. I think that plays off what you were just talking about is focus, focus, but and and and, and of course repetition is really how we learn. You have a specific thing and you engage in repetition. So what you're talking about with 10 minutes every day, everybody's got 10 minutes. You're absolutely right. Um, the analogy that happened for me when I was a kid was the piggy bank analogy. I had a piggy bank and it was made out of, it was ceramic. And my mom would say, just take, take your allowance or take, you know, whenever you find a penny on the ground or a dime or whatever, just take it and go put it in your bank. Just take it, drop it. Just put it in there. Don't think about it. Just do it. One day, what happens? Piggy bank's full. That's right. <laughs> you take the hammer, you break the bank, you've got this all this all this money. I think I think this so what what where I'm going with this is something that is actually taught. Um it it's it's come from very different places, but it all explores the same idea. I've heard Joseph Campbell talk about it in his amazing uh, series on the power of myth. Um, it's in the teachings of Buddha, and it's this, don't be attached to the outcome. In other words, don't, don't think ahead and dwell on where you want to be. Be in the now. Be here now. Um, and if you do that, that is your focus, not, not thinking about where it's going to take you. If you don't focus on that part and you just stay focused on what's going on right now and you just do that every day, one day, all of a sudden, there are going to be hurdles that you are going to be able to jump over. And it just happened because all of that time brought you to that moment. And that's when... The, that's when your piggy bank is full. Does that make sense? One, you understand dude, what I'm I, I That's such a great, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, one of my favorite things that happens when playing, because I play a lot of gigs, is like, 
you know, you work on a lot of stuff. I work on a lot of stuff every day, but it never, it doesn't always come out in my playing when I'm playing live because it might not be ready yet. But when you're playing and you're, like you said, you're just in the moment and all of a sudden out of nowhere rolls the lick you've been working on or just there you go yeah you didn't even think about it that's it, it happens yeah it's my just, favorite just, thing just just stay focused on the on the on the on what you're doing right then and there do your 10 minutes move on and do something else i will say this though another aspect of practice this is a whole other different extended conversation but <laughs> um um you can be practicing music by running it in your head, sing melodies, sing melodies of complex tunes, you know, for you, for you folks that maybe, you know, you know, are still, are still learning some of the, the classic, uh, fiddle tunes, you know, like, uh, something that's maybe got more than an A and a B section. Oh, Jerusalem Ridge is a great example of this. Um, you know, you're, you're learning something like that. Um, sing that melody in your head, sing it silently, sing it out loud. Anytime you, anytime the opportunity presents itself, um, practice, practice air mandolin. I literally can sit and be looking at my imaginary fingerboard and I'm moving my left hand around and I'm, and I'm sitting there with my, sitting there with my, with my right hand gripping a pick and and I'm right now. You can't hear this probably, but uh, I've got a I've got a I've got a bowl sitting here on on my table, and I'm sitting here practicing up down strokes on the edge of that bowl. And there's no pick in my hand, but I'm moving all the other components of my hand and my forearm in that process. Um, in other words, you don't practice doesn't mean having the prerequisite of having your mandolin in your hand. That's, that's really, that's, that's, that's important. I, I keep a yeah. pick in my pocket so, all the time just to, just, you know, I'm just try to, I'll even just carry it around, just remind myself to carry it loose. I think I, I think, I think I heard, I can't really place this specifically, but, but I have it in my head that I think somebody was, was interviewing Chris Thiele and he, Chris had mentioned that he was he was he was engaging somebody in a conversation or somebody was talking to him but what he was really doing was running um running parts in his head of Bach partitas <laughs> that he was preparing to record on non such records it was his Bach uh project uh for solo solo mandolin and he was listening to the person but he was really in his head. He was running these parts in his head as he was sitting there talking to somebody. I mean, and I totally got what he, I totally got what he was talking about. Well, man, the the final question. We'll just make this a quick one here. Do you have a yeah. fav, do you have a favorite beer? No, it's impossible. To me, the whole thing of do you have a favorite anything? <laughs> it, it it you know. It's it, no, <laughs> no, I don't. But I will say this: I, I, yeah, I am, I am a dark and chewy guy. I love stouts and porters. Um, I like them savory. I like them sweet. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I really, I, yeah. I mean that I would just say that's probably, that's probably the simple consistent answer. I mean, I'll drink porters and stouts in the middle of summer. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a seasonal guy with it either. I just, I love the complexity and the depth. I love, I love beer and ales the way I love my coffee. Strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and when I mean strong, like, you know, yeah, I mean, I like the caffeine or sure, you know, if you want to, if you want to have a, an 8%, a 9%, um, um, that's cool, you know, but, but I, but, but it's the flavor, you know, the taste is a big part of that. There is a, there is a, um, there is a stout that's, that's brewed up on the, on the North coast of California, uh, out of, uh, Fort Bragg, um, and North coast brewery. And they make a, they make an old Rasputin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely heard um, of it. That's one I've been, I've been enchanted with that one for a long time, but there's, you know, there's, but there's, there's a lot, there's, there's, there's a lot of really great porters, stouts, all of that. Yeah, man. Well, Joe, <laughs> thank you so much, man. This has been, this has been just like such an inspiring conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're super busy, so it, it really means a lot that you took time out of your day and your schedule to do this. So thank you. Well, Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for thinking of me in the first place. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you at uh, Delfest, if not sooner. Heck yeah. There you go, everybody. Joe Craven. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you're in Michigan, stop out and see me. State Theater in Bay City and Otis Supply, the Parliament Room in Ferndale. Cheers, everybody.